This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. You're listening to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashan Johan. Recently, there have been some rumblings that healthcare workers in Malaysia are going to go on strike to demand fairer wages and better working conditions. We hear about strikes from across the globe as well. For example, rail workers in the US were about to go on strike recently until President Joe Biden signed a bill to block it. In 2020 and 2021, farmers in India went on strike for weeks against a law that would put farmers at the mercy of corporations. But what exactly are strikes? Joining me on the show to discuss this is Arvind Kadir Chelvan. He's the youth chief of Party Socialist Malaysia. Welcome to the show, Arvind. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing good as well. I'm very eager to dive into this topic with you. So let's start from the the bare basics, Arvind. What Mm. is a strike and how are they different from protests? Strikes have to do with stopping work. So that's the main uh, uh, agenda of a strike where a group of workers, uh, either from usually uh, from one company or uh, if it's a little bit more general, one industry will stop work for uh, a specific amount of time, usually a day uh, to essentially stop production in that industry or company. Protests is a general term. So strikes are a form of protest, uh, but protests can be... uh, with anyone in uh, in any form of in Malay we call tunjuk perasan lah, right. uh, in whichever way that they show uh, their dissatisfaction, uh, that will be a protest and usually it will be a gathering. But uh, there'll be uh, different forms of that lah. Strikes are very specific in their methodology, which is uh, stopping work from happening. Right. Um. I think Arvin, it's probably best to take a step back and understand the way society and politics is structured uh, before we proceed, just to get a better understanding of what exactly, uh, how exactly strikes work. Um. Can you talk to me about the role of businesses, workers, and governments? What do each of these uh, um, groups play in society? What roles do they play, and how do their roles intersect? For this, we have to go back in history la, a mm-hmm. little bit and uh, actually to the dawn of man itself. <laughs> so um, human beings, mankind, we're not plants, so we cannot photosynthesize. We right. need to eat food, right? right. We're basic animals. So um, we need shelter, we need clothing, we need water. All of these things, our basic needs and beyond essentially our wants as well, Usually in today's world, because we live in, you know, an advanced form of uh, society called capitalism, is not produced by us. So, you know, people who buy shoes largely are not the people who produce shoes. Right. People who produce shoes are usually in some factory somewhere else producing the shoes for other people to wear. Those people who produce are called workers. Uh, They are the ones who essentially create uh, the needs and wants of human beings for others, such as myself and yourself customers to buy. So those are workers. Workers are the lifeblood of production. Businesses are what gives workers jobs right. in, in capitalism. And that is because they have a historical relationship that may go back to even colonial times in which they hoarded wealth and capital. And as I uh, talked to you before, capital is essentially um, the means of production. What right. uh, is needed to produce the things that we need to survive, essentially machinery, uh, land, um, uh, and whatnot. So because they own that, 
workers have no access to it to produce their own needs, to produce the needs of others. So the only thing that they have uh, to generate an income with which to buy food uh, and other necessities are to expand their their labor, uh, right. to sell their labor for wages. Governments are kind of interconnected between the two, essentially. So mm-hmm. governments in, ca- in a capitalist society seek to preserve the hegemony of capitalism. And that is to say they seek to uh, protect the business class, the capitalist class, uh, so that they can hoard wealth as, as much as they can through uh, such inventions as laws uh, and uh, other forms of bureaucracy that uh, stops workers from organizing, stops the common person from organizing. But governments are not just that, basically. Governments can be something else. If uh, a, a government is formed by the workers or the government has sufficient uh, structures in place where workers and the proletariat and the common people of Malaysia can effectively inform government decisions, then they represent the voice of the people right. and execute uh, social needs. Uh, and we have some social needs that we're not all, you know, completely 100% capitalist, <laughs> la, basically. We have some social needs. We have uh, right. affordable health care. We have some PPR housing here and there. Uh, so those uh, forms of uh, things are coming into a government where uh, needs of the masses are fulfilled. Right. So now that we understand the, the, the way society is structured, especially under a global capitalist system, what are the benefits of strikes? So strikes are very powerful, hmm. extremely, extremely powerful tools, because only through a strike will you realize who holds uh, actual power, which is uh, the workers. And you know, Lenin and Marx uh, call them the proletariat. And they said the Lenin specifically said the proletariat have a unique uh, role in society where they are holding all of the power, essentially, because they are producers. Without right. the workers, you're not producing anything. Without production, you are stopping um, uh, the basic needs of, uh, of humanity to be met. And, and more importantly to the capitalists, you are stopping profits. Right. So by threatening it at the core, and this is why I love strikes, because they are really going to the core of uh, society, of uh, how the capitalist system is arranged, the exploitative nature of capitalist system taking the labor from the workers, they're hitting it where it hurts. Hmm. And that is the major benefit of the strike compared to a general protest. General protest may be, let's say, for example, maybe a, a, a larger scale, maybe involving a lot of people and may not hit it where it hurts. But when a strike happens, you know it's happening. When a strike happens, nothing uh, nothing goes on in a factory. And when nothing goes on in a factory, that's when the capitalist class are really scratching their heads out to uh, fix, uh, uh, fix it, especially if it's a multi-day strike, basically. And this is the benefit of the strike. The benefit of the strike, of course, the major benefit, usually in a, in a specific strike, uh, as opposed to a general strike, which I can explain about later, uh, uh, the major benefit of a specific strike is the needs of the people, of the workers within that uh, factory or within that industry are met as quickly as possible because it is in the benefit of the capitalists to do it as quickly as possible because they want work to resume as, as fast as possible. And that is the major benefit, basically. And that's why I think strikes are a superior form of protesting. Right. And I'm wondering if a strike, um, usually from you know my understanding, it's centered around wages a lot of times or you know perhaps um, better working conditions, um, better work hours, better work benefits, um, things like that. It's usually centered, uh, centered around work, um, you know, very specifically, a specific industry, like you mentioned. I'm wondering if this uh, of strikes can or have developed into larger political struggles about who runs and governs society in and of itself. 
Definitely, it strikes have all of the potential, have the most potential of any protest to do so. Because again, you're hitting it where it hurts. Imagine one day you wake up in Malaysia and suddenly the trains are not working, the food factories are not working, the agriculture sector, the, the, the farmers are not working, nobody is working, everybody is at home asleep. You go to the store, <laughs> what, are, what do they have to sell? You know, you, when, you, when you imagine this kind of nightmare scenario, nightmare for the consumer, not for the worker, right? Nightmare scenario. You can really wonder, actually, this can bring down a regime. This can bring down a whole government. Imagine the unrest that can come up. Imagine the, the uh, because uh, produ- production is not just to sell to the consumer. You're also meeting uh, contract terms. If you cannot export to the contract terms, then you will be sanctioned as a country, basically. And that will cause a lot of um, a lot of political pressure onto, onto uh, the, the people who are governing us. That is one part. So that is an imaginary scenario. A scenario that really happened was uh, the Russian Revolution. Right. The people who took the lead in the Russian Revolution, although, yes, of course, Lenin's party was the vanguard party that was in the forefront, but it was a Soviet revolution. And Soviets are workers' councils. So you see, when you have a group of workers, you have groups of workers who are educated about their rights, about the power that they hold in society, about uh, the, the reality of production, they can then make a decision to say, actually, I disagree with how things are going on. I don't want to fight so many people for so many bureaucratic laws all the time. I want something. I want to change the society so that I have more power, more input than definitely 100% strikes can lead to total political shift, uh, either through a revolution or by scaring the government enough to produce uh, enough reforms uh, to satisfy the workers. You mentioned the word education. So I want to talk to you about organizing because that is something that your party focuses a lot on, organizing the grassroots. Because strikes, especially the successful ones, don't just happen in a vacuum or because of a singular burst of anger necessarily. It's not a a random form of expression, right? Um, Polish-German socialist Rosa Luxemburg, she once wrote that, and I quote, "In in order to be able to overthrow absolutism in Russia, the proletariat requires a high degree of political education, of class consciousness and organization. How do you see it? What is the importance of this? Let me share with you another term called picket. So picketing is uh, not a protest. They're not stopping work. It's where workers, after the the shift is done, uh, come outside of their company and then uh, protest in front uh, front of their, you know, that is called picketing. They use like signs, sorry, the, the, the term picket signs are there, right. um, uh, to protest against their employer. That is a very basic, low level, doesn't, uh, what do you call that, affect anything else except for the image of the company uh, and the relationship between the union usually and the company. To do that itself is such a difficulty in Malaysia. Hmm. You know, to because um, protests don't just happen like uh, overnight. So strikes don't just happen overnight. You need to get the people who are involved together. Uh, you need to tell them that, hey, you know, you have rights. You are producing. You, uh, this and that, the other. And the and the, the thing that they come to come back to us with is state propaganda. 
because the state has uh, has indoctrinated especially after mahade has indoctrinated them in in such a subservient nature that they believe that hey no no my my employees are good man or you know like my company is good we have to like support them it's just that they're making this small mistake this time by not paying me wages for six months you see that kind of terms right. are, like you know people who are suffering itself you know are so hegemonically like affected mentally by the uh, propaganda of uh, capitalism and propaganda of the state that it is difficult to make them realize that actually they are the ones who are producing all of these things and they are the ones who have power and they deserve to be paid more or they deserve to have better benefits just to get them to come out to do that is difficult okay let's say they want to come out and do that they are very progressive because we have uh, had a union uh, our hospital workers union who are who are that progressive right but uh, then the employers get involved and the employers say actually no i'm going giving you double shift today because uh, i don't want you to go to the protest they don't tell you that like, that's illegal but they give you double shift suddenly they uh, uh, transfer you to another department suddenly they uh, promote you suddenly so that you are a manager and you're like part of their their group now you cannot right. uh, what do you call that be part of the union all of this nonsense they will do supervisors will covertly threaten workers that if you go out then sorry la your work tomorrow your job tomorrow may not be secure Hmm. All of these things happen, you know. Uh, so all of so these are all the barriers that we need to go through, and it is very difficult. Of course, it is very difficult to get through to the workers. It is very difficult to uh, get the progressive workers to come out when they are being their livelihood is being threatened. Essentially, so I agree fully with Rosa Luxemburg. But another thing that I want to say is just because it's difficult, just because the majority of workers are unaware of their rights at the moment, that doesn't mean we need to stop doing protests and stop doing strikes, lah. It. the protest must be seen as a way to inspire other workers to come out right. and uh, protest as well the strikes must be seen as a way to educate the masses as well once they see it they'll think actually you know now i'm being oppressed as well you know why can't i do this and then they will start thinking that way and they can start doing it as well so we have to be a little bit more optimistic in the face of pessimism basically on the show with me today is arvin kadir chelvan he's the youth chief of party socialist malaysia after a break we continue our discussion on strikes keep it here on beyond the ballot box bfm 89.9 Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashran Johan and on the show with me today is Arvin Kadir Chelvan. He's the youth chief of Party Socialist Malaysia and he's giving me the 101 on strikes. So Arvin, I'm wondering what exactly is lacking in Malaysia? Um you brought up difficulty, the challenges. You also brought up something that I find very interesting. And mm. and you know you can even observe this on your day to day where Malaysians have this this mindset that in the business in which I'm working for uh, my bosses or businesses that run the country in general are all good people they want what's best for the country it is just that they may make mistakes and so we need to you know push them and and to rectify the mistakes but this is the general mindset I, I'm not asking this question to encourage strikes but i'm wondering why we hear a lot about strikes happening in other countries even other countries that are also part of the global capitalist system you're talking about india you're talking about france germany denmark even in the father of all capitalism the united states we hear about um, strikes being planned whether it's starbucks workers rail workers so on and so forth but not in malaysia so what's significant about malaysia and, and our history 
Okay, so you may not be asking this question to encourage strikes, but I am answering this question to encourage <laughs> strikes. You know, we need more strikes. Now, why it doesn't happen? There are there are a few factors actually. Uh, one, uh, you mentioned India and people, uh, places like India and uh, um, certain other countries uh, have a strong leftist tradition uh, that has uh, been ingrained into the society over time, and because of that. Uh, the the revolutionary nature, uh, the 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 nature to protest, is still alive. Places like uh, France and Germany, you can make a case for it, lah. But you know they are still in the global north and they are still uh, exploitative uh, in nature. But so Marx said that only in uh, industrialized nations do revolutions happen. Basically, that has proven not to be true completely. But we can see that uh, in certain countries where needs are generally met. Uh, to a certain degree, people have the wherewithal, with the time, and with uh, enough uh, thinking to actually go out and learn about uh, their rights, and then go to protest. Workers who are so underpaid, who cannot eat, you know, who cannot afford food, who cannot like uh, you know afford rent, who are behind on their bills, what do they worry about? You know, do they worry about where I'm going to get the next paycheck from, or do they worry about I want to change the system? <laughs> so you know. Putting people in uh, this kind of like um, poverty adjacent uh, scenario is a methodology in which to suppress their revolutionary potential as well, because now they are worried about something else. And then now that they are in a vulnerable state, you can tell them all of the propaganda that you want to that you want to tell them. You are here because you didn't work hard. You should have studied harder. Uh, sometimes you are suffering because you did so many bad things in your past life. All of these things uh, will happen basically, and he is uh, what do you call that doing well right. because yeah lah, you know he was intelligent, he was smart, he was this and that. The the propaganda distracts from the people from the reality of uh, the system, so that to protect the system, as I said before, you know the government is here to protect the uh, economic elite because in turn the economic elite protect the political elite. So everything is connected lah in this sense basically. So we can't really fault Malaysia after Ops Lalang, after all of the negative press uh, the left has gotten and organizing like this has gotten. You can't blame the the Malaysian for not having awareness. It is engineered. Uh, so that uh, they don't have awareness that they be, don't become a threat to production in Malaysia. Over the past, let's say, 10 to 15 years, we have seen a sort of um, awakening, at least a little bit, when it comes to the political consciousness among Malaysians. Otherwise, we wouldn't have been able to see a, a Bursay protest with about 500,000 people. But there's something missing from that Bursay protest, which is what you've been talking about. In Malaysia, when we discuss some of the problems um, that Malaysians are facing, from a day-to-day perspective, everybody talks about how wages are not good in this country, right? So why aren't we demanding for that? And it's not a criticism because these are important, powerful movements. I'm I'm wondering if there is something that Malaysians don't realise about the way politics and all is structured, that we are not getting to that, that strike, um, industrial um, strikes. Rather, we are just getting general bursts of protest, which last, let's say, uh, five, six hours at most, maybe sometimes one whole day, and then people go back home after that. So when we look at a lot of the protests, the general protests that happen are de-emphasizing the class consciousness, essentially. And that is either by design so that their general messaging is a little bit more clear because Bursay focuses a lot on corruption, on uh, on uh, systemic uh, reform. Um, 
And that is because the people who lead uh, these Bersih protests, like Bersih and of course we have to admit Pakatan Harapan's uh, politicians, they are generally not following the line of class consciousness and they do not follow the line of the left, basically. And so, of course, in that in that regard, what is more important for them uh, is the preservation of the economic system, but with changing of the leaders so that you know they are in charge. Of course, the the, the thing that is sold to us is they are uh, less corrupt, and it may be true. Of course, I'm not uh, saying that it's not that important uh, reforms uh, must be put forth. But what we are arguing, and we should argue essentially, is. Uh, these reforms are stopgap measures, are duct tape on cracks. So we want to fill in the crack, basically. And to do that, you need systemic change. You need to change the, the, the whole system, the capitalist system, to a system that puts workers in charge, puts uh, common uh, Malaysians in charge. And that level of discourse is not um, entertained amongst uh, the majority of the leaders of these uh, organizations and the protests. And because they are the big ones and they are the most well-funded ones, their narrative is more popular. And that's why we don't see uh, so much of an emphasis on uh, on labor. We at PSM, we are trying. We are we are uh, doing as much as we can. We have a union. We are supporting unions. Even like a few months ago, uh, I went uh, with uh, some of my colleagues uh, in solidarity with the um, Electronic Industry Workers Union in uh, in the northern region for their picket. Uh, and also this one in, uh, in Penang that I went to and then Kedah, my other colleagues went to essentially. What are the roles of unions um, when it comes to building the collective class consciousness uh, of a society and also then, um, you know, when it comes to strikes and, and protests? What, what are the roles of unions? Unions in a, in a good world, in a, in a world that unions are effective, uh, unions will get the workers together uh, to get them to discuss with each other what their uh, work conditions are, uh, what they want in uh, in the next year, whether they want a specific percentage increase in wages or if they want more leave days. They uh, will discuss amongst themselves and then uh, they will uh, take uh, to the their employers uh, what we call a collective agreement. So they have collectively agreed. Uh, for these uh, terms to be met, and then the leaders of the unions will take it to the ma- uh, to the management, and then they'll either have to give or renegotiate, and that process goes on. Basically, right. that is a basic uh, building block of a union is to protect the the rights of the workers, and uh, the way that they protect it is by looking after each other. This was a, it's kind of a beautiful um, uh, relationship there, lah. And right. unions are generally the people who call for strikes because they're the ones affected, you know. No, that it doesn't make sense for me to like go out there and then call a union for the electronic uh, workers, basically, because I'm not an electronic worker myself. I have no right. local standard. But when a union does it, you know, the union people will mobilize and 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 go out and protest essentially. Now, sadly, in Malaysia, we do have a very small rep- uh, representation of workers in unions. We only have about six percent of workers who are in unions, and uh, a lot of these unions, if you don't mind me saying, are. Um, filled with careerists, we, we call them. So people who are pro-management, who do not really uh, have the workers um, in mind, but are cozying up to the people who have power so that they get benefits, basically. And that is a sad thing that is happening in Malaysia and one thing that we are trying to counter as well. Recently in the US, um, rail workers were gearing up to go on strike for fairer pay and work benefits. However, US President Joe Biden 
who in US context represents a the more progressive of parties. Um, and even the, the large majority of political elites um, in the US from across the aisle prevented it from happening by signing a bill. And the reason they did that, they say, is because of they said it would cause massive economic disruptions. This is an argument I hear a lot against strikes, that it would cause an entire industry to collapse or, or worse yet, the entire economy to collapse. Mm-hmm. How would you respond to this? You see, uh, let's think about this logically. You have a group of workers or a group of individuals um, that if they, they, didn't have, they don't have to actively do anything, you know, they just have to passively stop what they're doing. If they do that, the whole society collapses. Then those people are so important to your society, right? And now they are, you know, protests don't just happen, you know. They, you know people get together, they say, okay, I want to be paid X, X amount of money, so let's write to the management, you know, to discuss a little bit higher pay. Let's ask the management a bit more, leave here and there. That process is long. It takes months. You write letters after letters after letters. You go meet people. You go meet other people. After all of that, after being ignored or being rejected at every single stage, only you have a, pro- uh, you have a strike. And then when you have a strike, you're blaming the workers. Who are you supposed to blame? You know, who are we supposed to blame? The people who are oppressing the workers are supposed to be the ones who are blamed. You know, because the workers are producing. And if they don't produce, society collapses. If you understand that existential threat, then you need to be understanding of the workers' needs as well. So I would say the US President Joe Biden, as you said, a progressive party actually, you know, (laughs) like... uh, there's a famous quote uh, that says, uh, even America has only one party. Mm-hmm. But uh, typical American extravagance uh, lets them have two versions of the same party, basically. And so the US President Joe Biden and the Democratic Party itself, along with their Republican comrades, uh, generally would like strikes not to happen because they want to keep their paymasters, their, their, their economic elite happy. But the entire point of a protest is that the economic power is within the hand of the workers. And if the society can see that and realize that, then society will realize, actually, just pay them more. Give them what they're asking for because we are extracting from them and it's because of them society is functioning. So we need to reciprocate, essentially. One of the problems I realized, right, it's it's not just the state. Like we brought up... Um, you know, Joe Biden and, and things like that. Um, and it's not just big businesses, um, whether it's in, um, you know, in the US, you have Amazon workers going up against, um, let's say, Jeff Bezos and, and things like that, right? It is regular people who also come to the defense of big businesses and the political elite um, and, and condemn strikes sometimes. So, for example, um, during the COVID-19 pandemic in Malaysia, um, there was this Hartal doctor contracts um, where it was a, they came out and did a very small strike. It, was, it wasn't like they were not going to work for a week or anything. Mm-hmm. It was just a very short period of time and they wanted to make a point. And even then, um, whether you go on Facebook comment sections, Twitter and all, um, while they did get a lot of support, you also have comments by regular people who are saying, you know, the country is already so, uh, you know, collapsing. And, and, and on top of that, you want to cause this extra problem by going on strike. Oh, you're going to make more people die. And I, I can imagine this happening um, in various other situations, right? Mm. Let's say if garbage collectors decide to go on strike, you will have a lot of regular people um, getting angry at the garbage collectors, um, and saying that, oh, how can you now, our taman is all like uh, stinking up and, and things like that. How do you look at it? The great success of capitalist propaganda 
is uh, getting people to understand everything can be done as long as you are not affected. Hmm. You get what I mean? You know? So when this kind of hyper-individualism has been sold to us for so many years, whenever something slightly inconvenient is happening to us, we blame the immediate person who is doing uh, that kind of um, inconvenience without understanding that there is a bigger structure in play. This is all propaganda. You know, all of it. Like, you know, we might be saying like, you know, the state doesn't, you know, there is a state, there is the uh, business class, but why these people are doing it? Because the state and the business class have taught them to be that subservient, obedient workers through every form of media, every form of indoctrination as possible. Now people are living in a hyper-individualistic uh, environment where we don't even know our neighbors. Of course, when the, and then when uh, workers go on strike, people will say that, Harta doctor contract. The contract doctors are facing such horrendous working environments. They are paying, they are being paid peanuts, right? And, you know, we can see that now when so many MOs are resigning. This is an existential problem to our uh, healthcare system. And that is being pointed out by Harta, uh, by the Harta doctor contract people. And those who are complaining need to realize if the world doctors are so important, then why you don't want to pay them more? Right. You have no one else. You can't go and what do you call that? Uh, heal people. You know, like, you know, why don't, why don't we listen to uh, their needs? But they say, no, actually you should go in other, other ways or other avenues. Other avenues have been tried. You know, it's not like one day you wake up and you want to go on strike. No, other avenues have been tried and tested and failed only then. Uh, strikes and hartals and protests and all of these things happen essentially so the way to counter that is only through you know we try, we need to re-educate the masses we need to keep on doing the work that we do we need to keep on organizing the people we need to keep on uh, reaching out to people through programs such as this uh, to make them understand that actually the people who are supposed to be you're supposed to get angry at you know the, the one at the top you're not supposed to get angry at these people it's like It's like, you know, like uh, those Karen videos when they get angry at, at the uh, retail worker. It's like right. retail worker doesn't, doesn't own this business. Right. He can't make decisions. You're going to get angry, like right to Starbucks. Like, yeah, <laughs> it makes no sense. What is the importance of solidarity across the working class? So mm. whether if it's me, I'm not a garbage collector. Why is it important for me as someone who receives a paycheck or even if I'm some a small business owner selling karipap, I have an Instagram shop. Why is it important for me to have solidarity with these workers in specific industries who are going on strike? We don't want to isolate workers. Hmm. We don't want to say these are the group of workers. They are fighting for what their, right, uh, what, what their rights are and it doesn't affect me so I don't. What if it affects you one day? Then you're going to be alone and then you're going to be crushed. Right, so we cannot be like uh, facing this like caste system <laughs> of uh, uh, between workers, where those are their people and we us are our people cannot, because only through this division does uh, uh, the, the 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 greater powers uh, in hand, like uh, the business class and the political elite, can come and break uh, people up because their voices are not uh, are not uh, powerful enough. Once you get a general solidarity of workers for a movement, you will get a lot of change because that represents a lot of voices, that represents a lot of disruptions to production. And it's much more difficult to replace them. You see, what happens during strikes, and it's a very dirty tactic, is uh, these business class will get other workers, usually foreign workers, lah, that, that don't know better, that need uh, their own needs met. You know, so we're not blaming them as well to come in and take over. 
So the production still happens and the other workers will be summarily dismissed. Those are called scabs and they cross picket lines. So as much as we are aware, we shouldn't do that. And if the more of us who are in solidarity with uh, uh, those workers who are in strike now, the less likely it is for that to happen because they can replace maybe 10 people, 20 people. They cannot replace 20,000 people. While strikes don't happen in Malaysia too often, one of the more prominent strikes that happened in Malaysia is the Hartal of 1947, um, which took place 10 years before independence. Talk to me a little bit about this strike and what it accomplished. So the Hartal is an example of what we call a general strike. It's not a specific uh, to any industry. Hmm. It is a strike of workers who realize that they want a specific change in the country going forward and uh, they wanted that they wanted to be heard but uh, they were not being heard so the 1947 hartal is actually a, a great point in history to gain inspiration from and also to learn from because uh, it wasn't fully successful and i will uh, uh, take you through that so the 1947 uh, there were two groups that uh, wanted to form the um, federation of malaya in, in their own specific terms. The first group was the British uh, and their class collaborators of AMNO. So they wanted to form a constitution for the uh, uh, federation on terms that are unfair. They're anti-democratic and the pe- number of people who are involved to give feedback, very few. Only about 12 people were involved. On the other side, we have this beautiful coalition of organization called Putra AMCJA, All Malayan Council of Joint Action, and Pusat Tenaga Rakyat, they uh, got together and they became the strongest multi-ethnic solidarity front in Malayan history. And uh, they wanted a inclusive, democratic and progressive constitution for the Federation of Malaya. So if we go into it a little bit more, the British, for example, there, there were only six British people <laughs> and six local elites, You know, not even the Marhain, the elites, not representing anyone, with no input from Marhain, no input from the people, got together and wanted to draft this. Whereas the Putra AMCJA, uh, it had representation of so many co- uh, left-wing parties, of organization, youth women group, trade unions, what have you. 600,000 people. And this is Malaya back then. So imagine as a percentage right. of population. 600,000 people were involved in creating this, 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 this proposals. And what we got from that is proposals for the People's Constitution uh, in 1947. Putra AMCJA wanted a strong central government. They wanted uh, all races. And the important thing is they wanted a council of races. They can understand that actually the racial disparity, especially the Malay ownership was very low back then, uh, would be a, be a factor. So they wanted a council of races to be there uh, so that this kind of uh, geseran, conflicts against uh, the races can be uh, resolved without the input of the British class. Lah. So this, this impasse came in, in 1947. Uh, throughout October, Putra AMCGA uh, planned multiple hartals, mass protest strikes, civil disobedience, and they demanded for two things, independence from Britain, this is very important, and also they are protesting against the AMNO uh, for colluding against the British. So on the 20th of October, we have what we are discussing now, the All Malaya Hartal. It was incredibly successful for a whole day. So so little people were working. Right. <laughs> Such <laughs> shops were closed, streets were empty. People stood up and say, "We want our own constitution. We were rejecting you and uh, the, the British and the uh, and the elites, basically." So it was a great show of solidarity, and the success is that 
so many races including malays and putra was mostly malay uh, including malays including the, the chinese the indians uh, and uh, all other races got together and said no we want a progressive malaya but what happened after that um is is a sad case um so this shows that yes hartals can happen but the effectiveness depends on many other factors so this was a one day hartal because of that requirements that was asked for by the putra amcj was continued to be sidelined and uh, the british maintained control and they refused to accept uh, this kind of a constitution and the other constitution was approved lah basically and 75 76 years later uh, here we are in a malaya that is still divided uh, sorry malaysia that is still divided access to public facilities money housing opportunities are still separated along ethnic lines as i said it was uh, successful in the execution but the follow up was um, unsuccessful mainly because uh, the british used extreme violence uh, against uh, the people who are in uh, putra amcja after 1948 uh, in the state of emergency to suppress the left that's why we are in the state that we are now and that's what we are trying to revive back before we wrap this conversation up arvin i'll just like to get some final thoughts on <laughs> strikes and why they important strikes are extremely important strikes are important because you hit it where it hurts you know the capitalist class are lording their money over you when you hit their money then they will listen because we need to do so it it has come to a point where the workers of malaysia are so exploited and it, it and you you and me the friend may, may not feel it in, uh, in in such an extreme way mm-hmm. but if you go to the workers who are earning minimum wage the security guards who are in contract work the who are not being paid after 6 months they cannot do anything because that is the system and nobody listens then you will understand the real violence that we are uh, ex- extruding onto these workers and we are happy because we are earning enough and we are eating enough and we have a house cannot this cannot happen we must make it a point to the business class and the political elite that the workers of malaysia need respect deserve respect and we will take it if it is not given to us and so strikes are incredibly important peace if you want to strike go ahead reach out to us and we will help you do so thank you Thank you so much for joining me today, Arvind. That was Arvind Kadir Chilwan, Youth Chief of Party Socialist Malaysia. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashran Johan and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.